0: of Bible stuff. Um, by the way, do you want to point out we have one, two, three, we have seven A students that showed up tonight. This is good news. Um, so yeah, this, this, is the, this is the Bible I'll be referencing. Now the other thing is a couple things on Bibles. If you have a Bible that you like and you're comfortable with it and you know your way around it or it's the one you've always read or it's the one your grandma gave you when you were three years old, all, that's all great. Just be aware as, you're, as we're going through this, and you can see on the syllabus, we got a lot of Bible stuff. As you're reading through, you are getting that particular group of interpreters' understanding of the text. For example, the, this new interpreters would be uh, mainline Christians like us, like me, okay? That, these are the folks, the scholars who are part of this. How many of you have a new international version of the Bible? a good, a good, a good Bible, a very good Bible. I have at least two copies of it, a uh, study Bible and another one that's got some interesting notes from C.S. Lewis in it. Um, a fine translation, it's going to be much more evangelical. And it's going to have a more, uh, I hesitate to use the word conservative, but that's probably about the only word that we can really use. Uh, a little more conservative angle to um, theological issues. And it's going to be more reflective of conservative evangelicalism in the United States in the last 150 years. Um, this is going to be more reflective of, of current scholarship among mainline, mainline churches. How many of you have the, um, the Message by Eugene Peterson? There's one there. Several of you have that. That's great. Think, here's what that's called. It's called a paraphrastic translation. I've been waiting a whole year to say that. <laughs> A paraphrastic translation. What that means is, he's gone into the text. He's a brilliant. He's he's in the resurrection now. He died not too long ago. He's gone into the texts. Worked very. He's he's knows Greek and Hebrew as well as any scholar in the world. But what he's done is, he's then written it in a in a in a more modern style um, that sometimes sometimes takes great liberties with the text. You know, uh, Jesus loves me, or or, or, or uh, love your neighbors yourself. Love everyone that you meet in this world because you want to be sure you like everybody. In, you know, it's that sort of thing where it becomes a little more flavorful, as it, as it were. Um, uh, trying to think of a couple of other ones do we have out there. New American Standard. Anybody have a New American Standard? Uh, Ed, how many Bibles do you have? 18. <laughs> I've only got 35, so um, I, I'm slightly ahead. Uh, so the New American Standard is going to be more woodenly literal. If you, take, if you were taking Greek, the New American Standard is a great cheat. Um, I don't know how I know that. I just happen to know that um, because it's very close to the original Greek, at least in the New, in the New Testament. Um, any other Bibles out there, in the versions I have mentioned? The revised Standard Version is basically a... 60-year-old version of this. It's the first version of this that came out about 1958 or 7 or somewhere along in there. How about King James? Any King James Bibles? King James, got a few King James. Um, To this day in English, the King James Bible is the most beautiful in the English language, in my opinion. It is also the most error-prone. (laughs) There are tons of errors in there, partly because the manuscripts that the first King James um, translators had to work from had their own errors built into them. And so then those errors got translated into the text, and the text therefore carried those forward. Um, uh, Something to think about here when you're thinking about Bible translation is, think about what it's like when you're in a foreign country, and maybe you speak Spanish, or maybe you speak French, or maybe you speak uh, German, but you, when you're, unless you're unbelievably fluent and grew up learning both German and English all the way, for example, from birth to right now, unless you're that person, there's always going to be translation issues, right? If you're talking to somebody, if you're in Germany, you're trying to, I mean, all I know how to say in German is, Ein Bier bitte. that's about all I know. <laughs> uh, um, is that all you need? Yeah, well then, and also, where's the bathroom? Um, I, which I never did learn. Um, you know, so there's always, whenever you're trying to talk, well, we were just in the Holy Land. And, and I took a whole year of Hebrew, um, which means I can't really speak it uh, or even read it without stopping and thinking through each word and what it means. But even there were different times when I encountered um, Hebrew words, when I, and I wish I could think of an exact example, but there were a couple of times I went, well, it doesn't mean that. And I talked to our guide, Eod, who speaks uh, Hebrew. And he said, oh yeah, it's evolved over time to mean that now. Um, so just, just be aware, there's tons of translation issues. Um, your Bible might say something, my Bible might say something, and, and, and somebody might have something else in the, in the King James that says something else. Just be aware that you've always got different translation issues going on. All right, uh, one more thing. Uh, on the uh, the syllabus is there before you can see there's lots of Bible I'm, I'm also I'm also not going to promise that those are the only texts we'll look at we will we'll probably in fact tonight we're going to look at two or three more um, at least two that aren't on your list next week we get into heaven and hell we're going to be all over the place frankly but I wanted to give you those uh, verses to to see and scan best thing you can do if you get home by six o'clock or if you start your morning, Tuesday morning next week and look at this little syllabus and look at each one of those texts, take a few moments to read through them. That'll just help you to familiarize yourself. I don't expect you to come in with detailed notes or have done a ton of research on the internet to try to figure out what it's saying about this or that or that idea or some other idea. Uh, But I just want you to read the texts. And one of the best things to do, if if you wanna take it a half a step further, for example, uh, tonight, we're looking at Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. Brief visit to each of those, those texts. Um, you read Genesis 1. Everybody knows what Genesis 1's about, right? It's about baseball. Do you know that? Do you don't know this? What are, what are the first three words of the Bible? No, in the big inning. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you for the drum, the drum roll. So the musicians are here. Um, you know so you might read Genesis 1 and then what, what I do when I read the text, like I'm preaching on Psalm 38 this week, when I, when I read the text, I just make some notes to the side. I don't look at any of the scholarship any of the stuff. This reminds me of this, or that, something this comes to mind, or maybe I'll, I'll sketch out a story that I'm remi- remembering when I read that text. Now, as I get into the scholarship of it, it might be some of my notes are erroneous, and I was going down some rabbit holes that took me nowhere, some dead ends. But that's a really good, um, Lectio Divinia, are you familiar? I know Jody's aware of that. Some of you might have practiced Lectio Divinia. That's kind of idea. You read through three times, what is the Spirit saying to you through the text? If you could do that even one time before you come to, to class next Tuesday night, um, that, would, that would be terrific. All right? All right, so you can see. Um, tonight, we're going to look at original sin, um, grace, forgiveness. Next week, heaven and hell. Uh, the week after that, The End of the World and the Rapture. Uh, and the week after that, Homosexuality and, and Marriage. Um, I put the hot topics at the end. <laughs> Just to make sure you all came back at least one more time. Um, but these, these others actually um, really affect the way we relate to each other. They affect the way we relate to people of other faiths. They, re, they, they, re, they affect the way we relate... Um, in our families, in our businesses, in a, in a variety of ways. So, um, let's let's get into those now. So, Genesis chapter one. I think you already know this, um, but turn turn. It's right there at the very beginning. The word genesis, by the way, is, is an English transliteration of the Greek word genesis, which means beginning. That's the first word. The titles for the um, uh, first five books of the Bible come from the Greek Septuagint. That's a Greek translation of the Old Testament done uh, right around the time, oh, about 70 years before Jesus, um, called the Septuagint. The first, and so it's the first word of each, of each um, book. Uh, Exodus is Greek for uh, I go out. Uh, on the I go out on the way. The first word in the book of Genesis in Greek is genesis, beginning. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. I'm in verse 1. While the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Go back to verse 2. The earth was a formless void. And darkness covered the face of the the deep. Most scholars, and I'm I'm not a scholar, but I agree with the most scholars. Most scholars would say to you that Genesis chapter 1 was written uh, probably somewhere between 700 and 500 uh, B.C. While the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. Why would that be? Think about that. If, you were, if, you're, if your family and your heritage and your, your, everything about your religion and your faith and your family, all of that is connected to Israel, and yet you've been dragged, your whole family, maybe, maybe it was a generation or two or three or four before, have all been dragged off to some foreign country. You're living in chaos. You're not living at home. You're also wondering is there a God? Does God care about us? Does God know us? This Genesis 1 was not, is not, and was not written as a scientific text. It was not written to explain how things happened. It's instead in poetic form. Um, what's 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 the what's the line they, they say about politicians? Uh, you you run on poetry, but uh, um, uh, I forget the line anyway. Uh, in in for preachers, poetry is a way of speaking above uh, the literalness of the text. What, the, what those ancient rabbis were doing when they wrote Genesis 1 was they were trying to save the people in captivity, living in chaos, in a formless void. You see the connection? Where their lives made no sense. Here, no, this is, this is, this is how God works. God works in the middle of the darkness, the formlessness, and creates something out of, uh, out of, out of nothing. So its original purpose was to create a sense of hope and a sense of, of knowledge of who they were as people in, in, in exile. So now, let's get to the, to the topic for the day, original sin. Verse 26, let's keep on it. So we had day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. At the end of every day, everything was good. Day six, then God said, let us make humankind. By the way, what's the word there in Hebrew for humankind? Anybody know? I thought I heard it. Adam, Adama. Mm-hmm. The word we translate as Adam uh, actually means person from the dust. Someone who came up out of the dust. It it's becomes a proper name, but its original meaning was it comes, somebody who's created out of the dust. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image God created them, male and female. Skip over to verse... 31 now, God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. So, <clears throat> the idea of original sin, and we're going to get to it and, and kind of look at where that came from and how it, how it developed over the, over the years, but I love pointing out in sermons and in Bible studies that the very first chapter of the Bible is about an original blessing, we get so confused by talking about original sin, I'm bad, you're bad, everybody's bad, we're all bad. Jesus died for our sins, thank God. And now we all, now we, if, if we do the right things and say the right things and believe the right way, we'll get to go to heaven. No, Genesis chapter one is very clear. We do get to go to heaven, that's later. Genesis chapter one is very clear. God looked at everything God had made and it was very good. Male and female made in the image of God. And it was, they were, you are, we are very good. So my argument theologically is, at our core, we have, a, we have an essence that is, that is good. An essence that is, in the, in the Hebrew, it's tov, um, is, 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 is already uh, set up for living well, living graciously, living in that way. Now, that Genesis 2 comes along, and we have a completely different story about creation. Uh, That might be news to some of you. That might be old, old news to to many of you, especially if you've been in my Bible study before. I like to make sure you see that. Genesis 1 and 2 aren't part of the same story. They're two completely separate stories that have been put back to back in in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 ends at actually 2.4 and then at 2.5, the new story written by a completely different set of, of rabbis and theologians, maybe not rabbis, but old ancient Hebrew scholars and theologians is explaining something else. It's called, have you heard this phrase before, etiological? myth. A-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L, I think. Uh, etiological myth. An etiological myth is something that is, is told to explain why things are the way they are. Can you think of anything in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 that does exactly that? Why do snakes crawl on the ground? It's in, it's in Genesis 2, 3, and 4. I think in 3. Anybody know? Say again? They well, they don't have legs, yeah, but but um, how how come how come they're forced to, to walk on the ground? Because this, because the serpent, by the way, it's not the devil. We make that mistake all the time. In the in Genesis two, three, and four, there's no mention of the devil or Satan or any of that sort of thing. It's the serpent. The serpent is the wiliest of all the of the creatures in the in the garden. The serpent uh, causes, or at least suggests, to Eve and to Adam that they eat the apple and causes them to sin. And so, therefore, that's why snakes always. Crawl on the ground because they're like they're, they're because they're like snakes. Um, why why does a why does a woman have pain in childbirth? Well, according to these etiological myths, um, and again that's a technical term. That just keep that in mind. Um, it's because of their sin. Uh, why does a man have pain in his lower back um, uh, when he's when he's toiling the fields and doing the work? Why again? It's because of their sin. Now that's that's a broad category for this whole section, chapter two, three, and four. This etiological myth. Because there's actually something deeper going on. Much, uh, much, much, much deeper here. Look at, let me get sure I get the right, the right uh, text. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So, uh, the, the, remember how the story goes, right? God creates everything. Tells them, you can eat from any tree you want to. There's a thousand trees in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that one over there, don't eat from it, right? Do you remember that part? Remember that. So then the snake comes along, and what does the snake say? The serpent. What's what say? <laughs> Apples are good. We don't actually know what kind of fruit it was. It just says fruit. It doesn't say what kind. We, uh, somehow apple became the, the one. It doesn't matter. Apple, pear, pomegranate, whatever. Um, pomegranate just seems better. I don't know. It just seems better. Uh, uh, so e- you can eat anything you want. But then the, the, notice, look, in, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. Now, now, by the way, I do want to point out Who's the first theologian in the history of humankind? According to Genesis chapter three, it's the snake. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna skip right on. Maybe I'll get a Rattlebacks. T- uh, what's what's the, what's the team Diamondbacks uh, T-shirt from Arizona? You will not die. The first theologian was this was this snake. The woman to whom you, and then and then later, then later um. Uh, Adam uh, is is coerced by Eve. Uh, The man is coerced by the woman to eat from the tree too. And then God confronts him. God confronts Adam. And how well do you know the story? Do you remember what happens? God says to Adam, why did you eat from the tree? I told you, there's a thousand trees. You have any fruits you want except for that one and you ate from that. Why did you do it? What's he say? That woman that you gave me, do you see what he's doing? It's her fault and your fault. Now, here's where, here's where the concept of original sin kind of bleeds into this, um, or the idea of original sin shows up. The idea that he was inclined toward committing a sin. Therefore, he, uh, every human being has this original sin idea. My pushback on that, and I push back pretty hard, is, is, is that for one thing, The phrase original sin can't be found in the Bible, okay? It doesn't exist. Um, uh, I I grew up in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and one of our sayings in the 1800s was, we have Bible names for Bible things. You know, ask, ask me about the Trinity. What does the Bible say about the Trinity? Zero. Um, it says a lot about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say anything about the idea or the concept of the Trinity. That's something that we've added into it to help us understand in a broader implication. So we get to this text, we say, oh, original sin, it shows that he's bad. I don't think it shows that. I think what it shows is there's a natural, and I, I, that's why I don't like the word sin, there's, this, there's a natural tendency for us to get caught up in things that we know. Paul says later in his book, uh, his, his letter to the Romans, the things that I know I shouldn't do end up being the very things that I do. Wretched man that I am. That's what those are Paul's Paul's words. Have you ever experienced that before? Do you remember Lay's potato chips? Do you remember the commercials? What was it? No You you don't know what the serpent said to Eve, but you know the Lay's commercials. No one can eat just one. So if you sit down and you, you sit down and you go home tonight and you open a bag of potato chips, because Glenn put that in your thought and, and you, you take out I'm gonna prove and you eat one and you're just gonna wrap it back. You're not right? I, neither am I. I came home today and Julie was making some little pot pies for an early dinner so I could eat before I got here. And she'd also bought some cookies. I had three cookies before I had the pot pies. And on my third cookie, I went, oh, I, I'm teaching about this tonight. This is right here in, in the Bible. Um, the, the idea that somehow that is absolutely put into us, I just don't think is accurate. I think there is, a, there is a, on the other hand, I'm trying to nuance this, a, a tendency toward the inability to uh, um, just say no. Uh, Don't raise your hand on this one or say anything, but some of you are uh, maybe an Alcoholics Anonymous, some of you may know somebody who's Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the, one of the first things they say is they acknowledge they don't have their power over alcohol. And by acknowledging that, they can then take the rest of the steps toward a, a healthy and whole life. The ability to say no isn't so much what we're talking about, it's the ability to name it. If Adam could have said, my my Lord and my God, I'm the one, I don't know why, the fruit was before me, I ate it, I'm asking for your forgiveness. Do you you see the difference in, in that? That's the beauty of what, of what I, I believe both uh, Jewish Judaism and Christianity teach. It's not about you gotta learn how to have a strong will and stand up against things and only eat one Lay's potato chip just to prove that preacher crate is, is wrong. No, it's about acknowledging the inability to say no. And then within the community of faith, find the strength and the skill and whatever it is we, we need um, uh, to, to, to wrestle, wrestle with that. Uh, <clears throat> there's, there's, um, there's a, 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 a temptation. I'm, I'm skipping on to the next point here. A temptation when we're in pain to think that somehow we've committed a sin and that's why this pain has been given to us. You know, because Adam, Adam and Eve, they suffer according to the text. Here's the etiological myth parts. Uh, Adam Adam will have... Um, pain in his lower back. He'll have to till the ground. No longer will he just have the trees all around providing food. He's going to have to till the ground. The woman's going to have pain in childbirth because, because of her, of her, her mistake. Ha, um, sometimes we think that all of the pain we experience in life is a result of something we've done wrong. Now, if you eat a bag of chips three times a day and you wash it down with uh, a regular Coke and then you have, uh, you know, four cookies like I did at dinner and that's all you ever eat, there's probably going to be some pain in your life, right? Most likely. Uh, um, But sometimes things happen that that are just brutally awful that are not a result of anything you've done wrong. The temptation is to think, oh, I must have done something wrong. I'm going through all this right now. God must be punishing me. What, what, is, it? what is it that's going on? In fact, Julie, my wife, Julie, who's a CASA, will tell you that oftentimes when she works at CASA, court-appointed special advocate, they fight for the rights of children in court. Oftentimes a child will think that he or she has done something wrong when mom and dad are at each other. If I was just a better boy, if I was just a better girl, Mom and dad might still be together, or or dad wouldn't drink so much, or mom wouldn't yell at me, or or dad wouldn't hit me, or all, all those things. In fact, I saw a, a, a beautiful, I'm skipping ahead a little bit to the forgiveness part here. I saw a beautiful story from a woman who was physically, not sexually, but physically abused by her father growing up. He beat her anytime she did something that he thought was out of line. As she it got, she became an adult and she moved into adulthood. She was able to understand her father better. She discovered that he had been beaten as a child. Oftentimes, the abuser has also been abused. That doesn't excuse it, but it helps you understand it better. She went back to her father to create a relationship, and what she said was, "I love this line. I didn't want revenge. I wanted a relationship." See, so if if we can if we can see if we can see what's going on in these texts through that kind of a lens of recognizing that there's going to be times when we can't, we can't just put the bag of chips down. And there's going to be times when we're going to make stupid, foolish mistakes that are a lot worse than eating a whole bag of chips. Um, although, well, I'm sorry, I'm getting off my, off my point there. Um, uh, that's, that's how I want us to, to understand this. Now, let's, let's scoot on ahead um, to Genesis chapter 4. Who are, the first two, who are the first two children born to Adam and Eve? Their names are? When Eve was Abel, she was raising Cain. That's how I remembered the um, uh, their two names. Their two names growing up. Uh, Which one kills the other? Cain kills Abel, right? One of them's a gardener. One of them's a a, um, farmer. Uh, One of them's a farmer. One of them's um, raises livestock. Um, that might be, by the way, an ancient echo of some of the earliest conflict that arose in antiquity beque- between people who uh, uh, planted crops and those who uh, had livestock um, because, you know, you don't, want the, you don't want the cows and the sheep coming in and eating all your corn because um, then you don't have any corn to, to uh, sell or grow or eat, etc. etcetera. So Cain, Cain kills Abel. Um, and by the way, please don't ask me about where Cain and Abel got their wives. Who knows? It, it, this is a story making a broader point. Cain's afraid for his life. Why is Cain afraid for his life after he kills his brother? What was the penalty for murder in, in antiquity? If I kill Gary, it's 5,000 years ago, what's going to happen to me? I'll be killed. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. The penalty for murder is death. Uh, what happens to Cain? God puts a mark on him, and Cain is not put to death. So now stay in the context of the story. Here's the beauty of the story. Is it literally true? Is it history? No. Is it true in an absolute sense? Yes. Here's the truth of it. The first murderer, according to the story, is not put to death. So here we have in the fourth chapter of the Bible, a story arguing against the death penalty. Now, I don't know what your politics are, and I'm not worried about it. I'm just preaching, okay? I'm just telling you what, what's here in, in Genesis chapter 4. The first argument against the death penalty is right here. And the, uh, what these old rabbis are saying is, from the beginning of time, God's opposed to killing, even in the instance where one is obviously a murderer and in a fit of rage has killed his brother. And by the way, it says in the text, too, you can read this later, uh, um, that sin was crouching at the door with Cain like a lion. Now, that's, that's in one of those paraphrastic translations, but I love that translation. Sin was crouching at the door of Cain's heart, soul, mind, whatever, like a lion. The, the idea is those options that we don't want to choose are still there. The inclination to choose it is not, I don't think, is original sin. That force, oh, oh, I'm just going to have to do this. It's still there. It's it's still there. It's a fascinating thing. So, the lion essentially jumps Cain's spirit, he kills his brother, and yet the very first act of forgiveness in the Bible is not death. Even Adam and Eve, who God said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die, they don't die. According to the story, Adam lives like, what, uh, 900 years or whatever? Eve lives uh, hundreds of years also. Again, not to be literally true, but, but metaphorically so. Um, they, even they don't die. They still live long, wonderful, uh, uh, amazing lives. <clears throat> so even there, the promise that they would be killed does not happen. For, and they're not killed. They just, like all humans, they eventually die. All right, I'm going to skip on to uh, John chapter 9. We're going to go right now, going to go up into the Old, uh, rather the New Testament. We'll talk some more about sin. John 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your New Testament. By the way, every Bible has a, uh, um, what's it called in the front? An index, whatever. Uh, that tells you where how to find, find the books. Uh, The New Testament starts after Malachi in the Old Testament. It begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels are right there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. They have the same basic source, a lot of the same basic stories. John is the wacko strange guy with the long hair, um, sitting in his corner meditating. He's a different kind of dude all the way around. His stories are different from Matthew, Mark. Some of them are similar, but different interpretation. Okay, I want to read the whole thing so you can get it. Nine, verse one. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So do you hear the issue? See, I was talking about that earlier. You know, something bad is happening to me. Well, that must be because there was a sin. Somebody must have sinned. So this is a a common theme, not only... mm, 1,000 years before Jesus, but also in Jesus' day. In fact, it's even a common theme today. People will still say, oh, he had a car wreck? Oh, well, what was it? Was he texting? Was he drinking? Was he, was it was a normal thing to sort of wonder, maybe in a gossipy kind of way, but still to wonder, what did, was he doing wrong that caused that, that to happen? Uh, um, Jesus addresses that right up, right up front. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? Jesus answered, Oh, and oh, oh, uh, let me, before we get Jesus' answer, let me go back on that too just to make the point. I talked to my sermon on Sunday about kids who are HIV positive at birth and about, about an orphanage that we visited. Uh, I visited with some friends from Kansas City um, in South Africa. Uh, um, who sinned? Who sinned? Did those children sin? Of course not. You could even argue, especially in a machismo-like culture like South Africa, where men always blame the women for, sort of like Adam, blame the women for everything, that even the mother most likely did not sin. The disease was probably transmitted to her by a man, most of the research shows in, in South Africa. Uh, so th- this is an issue that's, that's 2,000 years old, more than that even, that still exists in front of us. Jesus answered, neither this man, verse three, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming and no one can work. John loves those kind of images, night and day, uh, dark and light uh, constantly. Jesus is the light of the world who shines in the darkness, all, all of that. <clears throat> as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Hey, that's what I said. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud, and then he, then he heals him. And then they get into argument in the, uh, about what, what's going on here. I want you to hear clearly what, what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> there's, 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 there's the broader, deeper theological issue of Jesus and light and, and all of that. But just in the moment, he's very clear, this person didn't sin. In fact, in the Gospel of John, if you've got the same study Bible I did, you might have saw this note in there. The Gospel of John says that when John's gospel talks about sin, it's really talking about whether or not we're in line with Jesus and whether or not we're following Jesus let me be really clear about that. That doesn't mean if you're a Muslim, you're not following Jesus, therefore you're a sinner, okay? Or, or that if you're an atheist, you're not following Jesus, therefore you're a sinner. That's not what it's saying. John's writing to the church, He's writing to a church, a particular group of Christians, probably around 90 or 100 AD, somewhere in there. So a good 60 years after Jesus. So the church has evolved. They've seen Rome destroyed. There's all kinds of issues in the church. And he's trying to help them understand what it means to be followers of Jesus. And his mind, sin is primarily not following in the way of Jesus. He's not talking about this in a broad universal way. He's talking about for Christians for people of, of, of Christian faith who want to follow Jesus. And not sin in a, I ate too many potato chips, or not sin and I smacked somebody that I shouldn't have hit in a, in a fit of anger. Not that, but rather in a, in more of the, the way the Old Testament word, um, which is translated as sin, which literally means miss the mark. Have you heard that one before? Chata, yeah, you've heard that before, right? If if I'm shooting at that camera back there, and I've got a bow and arrow, and I'm distracted and I let it go, and it and it hits the door instead of the camera, um, I've committed a kata. I've missed the mark. If I promise Julie I'm going to be married to her and love her forever, and I have a day or two or ten where I don't, I've, in the understanding of that text, missed the mark, committed a sin. Do you hear what that is? That's such a that's such a, a much more relation based understanding of of how we live our lives. It's not about never doing anything wrong. Um, it's it's it, when worrying about it and trying to always be on the straight and narrow. It's about how we live together and how we uh, apply what we know from Jesus' teaching to the way we live with with each other. Um, when Julie and I would lead uh, uh, summer camps for high schoolers, mostly high schoolers, I think we did maybe one junior high one along the way, only one. Um, <clears throat> uh, we'd we'd put up on the on the wall, you know, big 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 piece of of, of um, uh, paper, uh, that butcher paper, and we'd put. Uh, we have only two rules all week. What were our two rules? Love God, love your neighbor. And that would be the first day. We have all the kids, 100 kids gathered in there. We talk about, okay, here's the rules. These are the only two rules we have. Any questions? And invariably, somebody would say, um, usually a boy, can we go in the girls' cabins? Uh, girls, would that be good for you? Would that be loving your neighbor? No, uh, that would not be. Okay, let's write that down. And so we'd write that down. Uh, stay in your own cabin. Okay, uh, any, any, other, any other questions? Does this mean we can stay up all night? Well, what do you think? Can we stay up all night? Well, no, but if we stay up all night, then we'll be asleep during the day, and that's when our community is building. Oh, so you know, we'll have a bedtime, 10 a.m., or 10 p.m. Do you see, see how that works? You know, the big, broad rules are this. Then we have to work out the specifics. Where, where I'm going with this is, it's, it's not about, oh my God, I've, I've sinned, I'm going to hell. It's about, oh my God, I've stumbled, I've missed the mark. What do I need to do to correct my aim? You know, I, I, I'm, an old, I'm an old, slow basketball player who could never jump, shoot, or play defense. Other than that, I was really good. Um, but what I what, what I what I did I, I, th- I must have shot 10,000 shots a day in the summer, because it, the only way you get better is you keep shooting. If you miss a, if you miss 100, you shoot 100 more to hope hope you're going to get better. The same thing it's it's a silly illustration, but it applies to our lives. How can we how can we live in such a way with each other that allows us to continually improve? I don't care if you've been married for forty years or, or, or sixty years or seventy years, um, it's it's always a matter of, of finding a way uh, to to live with each other. All right, so that's John nine. Let's go to let's go now to the really complex stuff. <coughs> Romans five, and I want you to start. I know what your, your your um, syllabus says twelve, I think, but I want you to start Romans five verse one. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And here's, here's one of the most beautiful passages in all scripture. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces <clears throat> character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Let's we'll stop there for a second. Uh, of a friend, I won't tell you his name, who spent a year in a federal penitentiary. Uh, he used to, he was the CEO of a, of a large corporation, and and the, um, the way he would describe it is uh, the rules for accounting uh, were very clear from here to here, and then there were some gray areas out here and some gray areas out here, and they wandered into both those gray areas. He got investigated by the SEC, he got, he got sentenced to 13 months in prison. Uh, um, The text he read every day in prison was Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. But hear the rest. Verse 6, For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that, here's the key, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about atonement theology and Christ dying for us and all that stuff, but here's what I want to focus on just for our class. While we were yet sinners... Hear the beauty of that. It's not when okay. I finally got my life together, and I probably, I probably, I probably, I finally proved I'm not eating too many lace chips anymore. I just ate one. I really. There you go. Now, 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 will you welcome me in. Okay, I, I've, I've proven that I, that I'll work hard every day, and I'll, I'll wake up early, and I'll read my Bible, and I'll, and I'll get in my ten thousand steps, and I'll do all the things, and I'll take out the trash, and, and I'll, I'll walk the dogs, and I'll do all that. Now, now, am I, now, am I okay? Too often in the Christian faith, especially the churches I grew up in, in the churches I grew up in, boy, that's, that's how you proved yourself. You start doing all these things. Well, then, okay, then you can breathe easy. Um, I had to go to a year and a half of therapy to get over that theology. It was, that was some of the stuff that I had to deal with in, in therapy. The rest I won't tell you about. But that was, that was, some, that was some of it. Um, this idea that you are already a bad person and therefore you've got to stop being a bad person before God will love you Paul wants the Romans to hear one thing God's love was already poured out for you period now you can live your life in light of that or not but that doesn't change that the love and the grace and the forgiveness were already given keep going a little bit more. And I, I am going to save some, I see, I see some quizzical looks out there, so I'm going to save some time for, for questions later. Don't, don't worry. Okay, now, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not uh, um, reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses and even even to now. Verse 18. So there's, so there's the connection with Adam in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Verse 18, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for… What's your text say? All. all. What's all mean? I looked up all. It means all. <laughs> all. Th- that's one of those texts that I absolutely wrestle with with my friends who come from a much more fundamentalist background. If we're going to take it literally, and I freely, I freely acknowledge by the way that I take some parts of the Bible literally and others I don't. And I do that by the context and when it was written, who was written for it, etc. I think Paul wants us to understand that God's love is given to everyone. And we can now either live our lives in light of that or not. It's kind of like this. Um, Maybe you've heard this story before um, because Robert Capon, who I'm about to quote, was a friend of mine. He was a great friend of Dick Wings. Capon used to tell this story. Uh, Imagine imagine I go to to Gary and Rebecca's house in the middle of the night and right outside where they've got a planter, I dig up the flowers and I put a million dollars in that planter, cover it back up, put the flowers there next morning i call rebecca and I go hey rebecca you've got a million dollars in your planner in front of your house she says you're insane and she hangs up the phone but there really is a million dollars there does the fact that she doesn't dig it up change the, the make it go away it's still there she can either go out there and dig it up and go hey look we can pledge the church hundred thousand dollars uh <clears throat> i know you would do that um or, you know, they could, they could do, do things for the grandkids and, and take a trip to somewhere and you know, all the fun stuff that you could do, or they could just be, no, we're not going to do it. That's kind of what Paul is getting at here. This, this forgiveness, this grace is real, and we can either choose to live in light of it or not. But which one would you want to do? Do you want the million bucks, or would you rather scrimp and scrape and, and try to just, just get by? Um, that's, that's what's happening in Romans 5. All right, now we're going to look at uh, forgiveness quickly at Genesis chapter 50. I'm aware in a lot of these texts, I'll say, oh, this is one of my most favorite uh, texts. Oh, this is another, basically from Genesis to Revelation. It's all my favorite stuff. Okay, so this is the story of Joseph. Remember, I preached on this a couple Sundays ago, a few Sundays ago. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, eventually rises, uh, goes into prison, etc., etc., etc. all this stuff, has dreams, uh, impresses the pharaoh. The pharaoh makes him vice pharaoh, essentially, of Egypt, his brothers are coming down to Egypt from uh, uh, Israel, from Palestine, because there's a famine and they need food and they're starving and uh, they're confronted by their brother. And they go, oh, that's our uh, holy golly um, and other things. This is Joseph. They don't recognize him right at first, but eventually they do. And there's, there's a nice moment. But then a couple chapters later, their father dies. And now they're worried again. Their father's died. And now Joseph's going to kill us. That's what they think. Verse 15, chapter 50, verse 15. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept and fell down before him. We are here as your slaves. Now stop there for a moment. Notice what they're doing. Notice what they're doing. They're acknowledging they harmed Joseph. That's a huge key. I don't think Joseph is waiting for that. But for them and their own, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, selfhood, It is vitally important that they acknowledge. I mean, they they present themselves before him as slaves. What do they do to Joseph? They sold him into slavery decades before. Now, on their knees in an act of repentance, they're acting as slaves to him. They're acknowledging the harm they charged, they they, they caused. That is unbelievably important. This is one of the most psychologically rich uh, uh, texts on how human beings interact together that you'll find in any holy book, in any novel, in any Broadway play, anything, It's right up there to Les Mis, (laughs) in in my opinion. It's right there. We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, uh, one of those key phrases that's throughout the Bible, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. So have no fear. So two actions take place here for the forgiveness to be made real. First, the one who caused the harm acknowledges the harm they've caused. They're not saying, oh, but it was that woman that you gave me. They're not saying, oh, you know, I was having a really bad day, and boy, the stress at work was terrible, and I really shouldn't have. No. They fall out on their knees and acknowledge what they've done wrong then the forgiveness is spoken to them doesn't come from the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh doesn't write uh, uh, a letter of pardon, like our presidents can do, and I think every president, at least last several, have have done. There's not a pardon offered by Pharaoh. He could, Pharaoh could offer a pardon. Maybe a judge could step in and say, Joseph, you know, I know you're vice Pharaoh, but this is actually my jurisdiction. I'm gonna say to your brothers, you're forgiven. Now take some grain and some water and and go home. That could have happened, but the only way for them to feel the, law, the weight of their guilt being taken away is for the one who was harmed to then speak the word of forgiveness. Joseph's the one who's been harmed. Their family's been harmed. There's probably extended pers- persons in the, in the community, et cetera, that have been harmed, but the primary harm was done to Joseph. And Joseph is the one who has to speak the forgiveness. Somebody else can't speak for him, he's the one. It's just just a beautiful text. I I, I think we could probably break into small groups of four, and if we knew each other well enough and it was a safe enough place, we could probably tell stories in our families, could we not, of times somebody you hurt and how hard it was to metaphorically, maybe even literally, fall on your knees and say I'm sorry. And how hard it was for you, if you were the one who was hurt, to metaphorically say I'm not in the place of God and I forgive you, don't be afraid. I mean, this is the crux of human relationships, is it, is it not? I mean, I, I, it's, it is absolutely the point, the most, I think it's the most difficult thing for any of us to do is to acknowledge and we've hurt another person and not blame somebody else or some, something. The stars and Jupiter lined up, whatever nonsense we come up with too often. <clears throat> so I started to preach a little bit there. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna take time to look it up. Jeremiah 31. You can look it up later. Jeremiah's writing in a time of, of, natural, of national disaster. And at this point, God is like, I'm tired of all this. And what God says is, I'm no longer going to wait for the people to figure it out. Instead, I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to write my love and my forgiveness on their heart. Literally in the Hebrew it says cut. Uh, there was a, like you would use a stylus to cut into a, a soft stone in order to send a message to another king and then it would dry and harden. You know, dear king of another land, I'm coming to kick your butt and uh, you better watch out. Uh, love, Glenn. And then you would give that to your messenger and send it to the king. He's, he's saying the same kind of thing. He's going to cut it into our hearts. God's love and forgiveness is already there. God's not going to wait for us to figure it out. So God actually kind of skips ahead in the process. This is the amazing part and skips ahead to the forgiveness in which, I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, it almost forces, not forces, but it's almost like this natural reaction to fall on my knees and say, I'm sorry. Three stories in the New Testament that that back this up. They're all in Luke 15. It's It's in your notes. First one is the parable of the lost sheep. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? Do y'all remember that? There's 99 sheep in the fold. He's got 100. And there's one missing. He leaves the 99 behind. He goes to find the one and bring it back. Now, when I was growing up, we were taught, oh, oh, oh don't let yourself be the one. You need to be safe in the fold. Craziness. No. Uh-uh. What shepherd leaves behind 99% of his profit to go find 1%? Does that make any sense? No, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense at all. What Jesus is trying to do is say, look at, look, look at what God is doing here. God's the shepherd in the story. God is going out to find you because frankly, the other 99 are just as lost and God is doing everything God can to go find all, all the sheep. The next parable that's in Luke 15 is a parable of the lost coin. A woman has one coin. She looks over her entire house to find that one lost coin and when she finally does, she rejoices. Now here's another piece. What did that coin do to get saved? Did it confess its sins? No, it was just laying there underneath the rug. Did it it acknowledge anything? No, the point is God's gonna come after us and find us even in our lostness, even in our lostness to help us find our way to that relationship point. The next story is the prodigal son. So three, Jesus is a good preacher, story, 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 bam, 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 lost sheep, lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal son. The son comes back. The son's got all worked out what he's gonna say. I'm sorry about this and this. And what does the father do? He sprints down the road. You know the prodigal son. I don't have to go to the little story, right? He sprints down the road, holds his son. My son who was lost is found. My son who was dead is alive. And they have a huge party. Here's, Here's where the rub comes. Too often, theologically, we, we want to avoid paying attention to what got us on the road in that story in the first place. Too often we want to pretend that never happened. We play pretend. That's not forgiveness. That's pretending. That's avoiding. If, if I say to my son, oh, when, my, when, my, when my sons were, were younger, oh, it's okay that you took the spaghetti off the stove and dumped it on the floor. Please don't do that again. And then he does it again. At some point, we're going to have a problem. He's still loved by me. He's not ever going to stop being loved by me. But as, as part of that love, we've got to help him face it. So go back to Joseph. They acknowledge, their, they acknowledge themselves. They're, they confess their actions. Joseph gives them forgiveness. That's where the crux of humanity meets that's where God meets us. But God is so willing to help us get there. God will go first in order to help us get to that point where we, we can make that confession. All right. I promised time. Uh, got 10 minutes. Good. I, I'm sorry I rushed through those last couple of, of, of texts, but I wanted to make sure I want to try to give at least 10 to 15 minutes every week for questions and, and, and all that. Uh, um, please. Uh, the Joseph story. Yes. Uh, the brother's Yet, they decide, gee, our father is dead. They make up a story. Yeah, right. They right, lie. Right. How does that die in? Well, that's the beauty of the grace that happens. That I think that eventually the brothers get to the point where they recognize, oh boy, with all, all the conspiracy that that's behind this, we're still in trouble. We've got, to, we've got to fall down as slaves and confess before you. Um, I, don't think it's, I don't think the story is arguing that this is, this is a good idea to do. Is that kind of where your question's coming from? Well, I'm just wondering about the fact that <clears> they <throat> lied to get there to achieve their objective, which was they, they knew that they needed his forgiveness. Mm. And, and they didn't think that they would get it on their own. Right. And so they... Right. Yeah, so I think, I, think the answer, I think the answer is Joseph's response. What you intended for evil, God is able to twist, shape, bend, redirect, and reconnect for good. So no, no matter how evil you've been all the way, even up to this moment, God's somehow been at work in this, reshaping it, reconnecting it, uh, uh, bending it for, for something good. Um, uh, I did a sermon series Oh, probably my first three or four months I was here called a conspiracy of grace, which is the word conspiracy is actually a negative word because people conspire to do something bad. But I played with the idea of the way grace conspires uh, sort of behind the scenes to help us end up living lives of of grace itself. That helps a little bit. That's a good question. Thank you. you. Other questions? Sally, another hand? All right. So next week, uh, here's what I'd like you to do. A little bit more homework in addition to this. You can probably just Google this. Um, Ed, you probably got these books on your shelves. Um, uh, Some of you who who read the same stuff I do, you you might have some of this stuff on your your shelves too. Uh, Come in next week, um, having just, like I said, just Google it. Google popular images, understandings, or ideas of heaven and hell. I, I think what you'll find is much of what we think is, is uh, biblical about, especially about hell, is more from Hollywood than from the Bible or from uh, Dante, yeah, which by the way is not in the Bible. <laughs> In case you're curious about Dante's Inferno. Um, most of the time, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, so, but do that. So go, go and see what kind of images are, are, are out there, and, and um, I'll give you this one little, one little story, which I actually think is, it's from Hollywood, but it really portrays um, Satan, uh, uh, which I don't believe in literally, but I do believe in that there is a force of evil at work in the world. It portrays Satan really well. It's the scene at the end of of the movie based on Nikos Kazantzakis' novel, The Last Temptation of Christ. Do you remember that? Some of you read the novel. Anybody anybody read it? None of you went to seminary and had to read that. Good. Um, How many of you saw the movie? Anybody see the movie? It's like 30 years ago. I took my youth group to see it. I thought I was really hip, cool youth pastor taking my kids to see this controversial movie. They all fell asleep. My entire youth group fell asleep. But there's a great scene at the end where this beautiful girl, 10 years old, flowing white robe long blonde hair she's just kind of hovering in the in the in the in the air in front of Jesus who's on the cross and she's saying don't you love Mary? Don't you love Magdalene? Why don't you get down off the cross? Why don't you go and, and get married and have children and write books and, and, and just just go to live a, a wonderful life? And if you've seen the movie or read the book, you know that, it, that, that at least the, he dreams of what that would be like. He gets down off the cross. He goes and gets married. He lives to an old age, and, and, and that's, isn't that wonderful? But I love the way that, little, that image is portrayed. That's actually Satan. Satan doesn't come dressed up in evil clothes with horns and stuff. Satan comes looking pretty, pretty sharp, pretty or 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 sweet or innocent or lovely. There's another Jesus movie. I forget the name of it. It was on TV a few years ago. Jesus or Satan's in a, a, a tall dude with lo, with thick black hair, slick back. And notice that Satan has hair, um, mm-hmm. slick slick back, and he's wearing this Armani suit. And he's like, "Hey, come on, Jesus, let's talk about some things." Uh, um, that's much more. Uh, the way I understand from the biblical studies how evil works in the world. but just just get focused on hell. Just Google uh, popular images, this popular images of heaven and hell. and then come next week, first five, ten minutes we 'll talk a little bit about what you found. all right. while we stand and have a prayer and we 'll we'll be done um, oh four minutes early. Thank you, God, for this beautiful day, for the warmth of the sunshine, for the reminder that spring is just around the corner. And thank you for this opportunity to gather together to dive deeply into these ancient texts, knowing that they not only tell the story of your people from long ago, they tell the story of us. Help us to not only see ourselves in them, but also to hear your voice of love, grace, and forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen.